I'm Archbishop Alan Vigneron of the Archdiocese of Detroit, and this is the Eyes on Jesus podcast. Hello and welcome to the Eyes on Jesus podcast with Archbishop Alan Vigneron. I'm your host, Mike Chamberlain. And I'm your host, Mary Wilkerson. We are excited to release new episodes once a month, so please make sure to share and subscribe wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Archbishop, welcome and thanks again so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Mike, Mary. I hope uh, you're both doing real well. I know I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Archbishop. I appreciate that. How, how have you been? How's your last month? How have things been going for you? They've been going pretty well. Um, you know, I'm still living in the joy of the Corpus Christi procession. That was a, a beautiful experience. It, oh. uh, I think of the Corpus Christi processions as a kind of a consummation for the Mass. It's like taking the Mass out into the mm. public square. Oh. And... Uh, the procession from uh, the cathedral to Sacred Heart Major Seminary was, uh, I think, blessed uh, abundantly. Awesome. We will be digging into that in this month's podcast as we talk about the Eucharistic revival. So I'm excited for that conversation. First, I wanted to ask you, though, we mentioned this briefly when we met last month, but we have a new auxiliary bishop. Um, Archbishop Paul Russell is with us. Um, And so I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about Archbishop Russell. Uh, Archbishop uh, is a native of Alpena, actually. Uh, is, uh, I think it's his mother's family is from Alpena. His father's people uh, were Bostonians. Uh, and uh, when it came time for him to decide about the seminary, he decided to apply to be a Boston priest. Okay. That was uh, his choice. He served there for a while. Then he was recruited by the the Vatican to become a diplomat and served in various posts. Uh, uh, the uh, the last post where he was actually uh, the Holy Father's ambassador was to Turkey. Oh, get that. Can you tell us really briefly, what is an auxiliary bishop? Just to kind of give us a structure of how kind of uh, church leadership works. Well, from the very earliest days of the life of the church, uh, all of the way back to St. Ignatius of Antioch, who knew St. John the Evangelist. So we're talking about uh, the, f- the first generations. There was a, a clear judgment, a clear sense that every particular church, uh, every local community should have one bishop. Uh, so, and we continue that today. So I'm the, I'm the bishop of Detroit, mm-hmm. but... There are uh, assistant bishops, just like you can have in a parish, you can have assistant pastors. Mm-hmm. Uh, bishops in large dioceses can have uh, assistants. Uh, they, uh, they serve alongside of and under the authority of the diocesan bishop. And in a large diocese, it's a way for the parishes, the people, the priests, to get the care of a bishop uh, when uh, the bishop of the diocese uh, doesn't have time or resources to uh, give all give everybody the attention that they need. Right, that makes that sense. makes sense. It uh-huh. does. I um I have the pleasure of following Archbishop Russell on Instagram, and it seems like he's excited to be here and he's going to do good work. So I'm pumped about it. Did you know him before he came to Detroit? Before he was assigned here? I did. Uh, I've known him since he was a uh, a priest in Boston. That's how I got to meet him. Oh. Huh. How did you guys yeah. meet? Um, I happened to be staying for a while at uh, the Archbishop's residence, and okay. he, he was serving as the 
archbishop's secretary at that time, oh. is uh, actually has older friends in this diocese, uh, Father Ed Zahorsky mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Bishop Fisher. Uh, they were all uh, counselors at CYO camp together when they were uh, <laughs> students. Here in Michigan? Yeah, up in, oh my uh, gosh. you know, on, on Lake Huron. <laughs> yeah, I went there as a teenager. That's really funny. They were counselors there together? Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. I love stuff like that because it's so easy to see the hand of the spirit, right? Moving people and people go away and people come home. That's really, that is a oh. neat fact about him. That's awesome. Very, very cool. Well, we are excited to welcome him to our archdiocese. And I'm Good. sure it, so it'll am be, I. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it'll be helpful, right, to have another person kind of um, uh, working the weight of the, the job that you do, right? It is. And, uh, This was not said to me explicitly by uh, the Holy Father's representative, but I I view this as coming, uh, the Archbishop's appointment as coming uh, with a a view toward Bishop Hanschen turning 75 in October. So uh, whenever Bishop Hanschen is relieved of his uh, full-time duties by the Holy Father, uh, we'll we'll still have... uh, an auxiliary bishop for each of the regions. Fantastic. Oh. I was about to ask that, Archbishop. So right now, technically speaking, we have five auxiliary archbishops. Is right. That right? Mm-hmm. Is that is that um, what is the the norm for this diocese for the archdiocese of Detroit? Is it usually? I know it's been four for a while. It seems like is well, that kind typically of the norm? Uh, it, four is the norm. Uh, it has gone higher from time to time, mm-hmm. but. Uh, when I have to, when I've think thought about it, when I have to uh, uh, give my uh, explanation for our needs to the mm. Holy See, to the Holy Father, mm. I explain it in terms of our regions that we've had mm. these regions for a very long time. Mm. I don't know. Certainly, they go back to Cardinal uh, Shaka's time. They may even go back to Cardinal Dearden's time. I'm not okay. sure about that, but uh, this. Uh, uh, division of the diocese into regions uh, is very, very helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that it, uh, well, I don't know for sure, but it's my understanding that a lot of uh, this approach was developed in, in France. Uh, and uh, it, it's a way to be sure that, uh, as I said, parishes and priests especially receive the attention uh, of bishops. I can't wait to meet them. Well, you had referenced Archbishop Vigneron, the uh, Corpus Christi walk that we experienced, uh, or procession, I should say, uh, that we well, experienced. You know, Mary, I, I think you can. Uh, we, we have uh, we have our own lo- language, and we can just, find analogs for it. Just taking a stroll with Jesus. Um, you referenced well, that. Well, someone someone described it to me as a as a parade, so I thought that was a fun. Yeah. <laughs> that is a joyful way to look at it, I'm sure, through the eyes of uh, childlike faith. So I like it. Uh, <laughs> we had that procession and we talked uh, about the procession last month. Uh, but we're doing it because this is kind of kicking off, well, in, in part, the National Eucharistic Revival. I wanted to know if you would tell us a little bit about the Eucharistic Revival and what it is and and kind of the history of it. Well, it's uh, a three years uh, grassroots level of uh, both catechesis and uh, spirituality, uh, we've had some uh, really troubling news, uh, surveys about uh, the level of understanding of uh, 
people who profess to be Catholic about uh, the real presence of Christ. And the bishops uh, recognize that we need to be uh, very uh, engaged and uh, help people come, come to a, new, a renewed appreciation of the real presence in Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. And so we agreed to this three-year process, and it starts at the grassroots level. So it starts with parish renewal. Then the next, the second year is about diocesan level uh, uh, focus. And then the third year is a national focus, uh, which will culminate in a uh, Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis in July of 2024. I saw that 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 it'll be kind of uh, ended or called not ended in many ways just beginning with the with the Eucharistic culmination is a good culmination. Word, Mary. Yeah, in Indianapolis. What what will that look like? What are, what are we kind of building towards? Well, I think uh, in some ways World Youth Days have been uh, uh, patterned after Eucharistic Congresses. So, but maybe people are more familiar with World Youth Day. Sure. But it has to, it has to do with uh, catechesis, uh, intense uh, spirit, uh, spiritual exercises, and uh, uh, just a manifestation of, of faith. And when you bring a lot of people together to witness to the faith, uh, the faith of each is increased, I think, by the the zeal and the devotion of all. Absolutely. So uh, there'll be uh, catechetical programs, small groups, uh, intense prayer, daily wow. Eucharist, and then there'll wow. be a, a very solemn celebration to uh, consummate the time together. Huh. It's, uh, it's about five days, I think, or, or maybe four days. That sounds awesome. And the fact that everybody, so this is when you talk about the grassroots starting first in the parish and then in the diocese and then at a national level across the United States, everybody's kind of moving in those three movements. Is that yes, right? Yes, uh, the bishops have deliberated on this. We've received uh, proposals. This is the plan we've endorsed. Oh. And that you, I'm just going to ask one more question about it. Sorry, I'm so curious, especially because you referenced something like World Youth Day. Is that going to be something that's open to you know, an average family that wanted to go to the Eucharistic. Yes, Congress. I believe it will be. Wow, that's going to be powerful. That's exciting. Now, is this um, an initiative of the USCCB, or is this kind of more of an international type of? No, um... this is a, this is a USCCB initiative. Okay. Uh, we had a Eucharistic. Actually, I think we had the World Eucharistic Congress in uh, 1976 in honor of our, it was a way for Catholics to observe the bicentennial. Mm. So there are uh, World Eucharistic Congresses, and then uh, there can be uh, national ones as well. And this is a national initiative. You know, Archbishop, you kind of alluded already of, of, of why there's a need for this. You know, you mentioned some of the survey data and things coming out. I don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit more of, of why the U.S. bishops felt at this time there is a need for the Eucharistic revival. And then also a second follow-up question to that point. Um, what does success look like for this revival? You know, it's a three-year process. What, what, would the, what would the bishops, obviously, seeing where we're starting and then hope where we end uh, upon in this three years? Well, we do. Uh, we have a lot of data indicating that uh, there's a decline in appreciation for the Holy Eucharist, uh, both among the people who uh, are regular in participating in Sunday Mass, and of course there is that very large and 
frighteningly uh, increasing number of Catholics who don't come every Sunday. And uh, we need to uh, reignite uh, ardor for the, for the Holy Eucharist and the celebration of the Mass. So we know that. Uh, we need renewal and we need to uh, establish situations where the Holy Spirit can bring that about. Uh, what does success look like? Um, I think I would measure it uh, differently in, in different uh, uh, cases where you have people who already have a very uh, solid Eucharistic faith. I think it confirms them. Mm. Where you have people who uh, have uh, tepid or uh, Eucharistic faith, I think it involves making them more ardent. And for people who uh, absent themselves from the Holy Eucharist, I think it's a, trying to get them to uh, feel an invitation and respond to an invitation to return. Uh, that uh, Sometimes we say the church needs them, and that's true. But I think it's very important to say that Christ needs them. Mm. You know, our Lord says, in, I think it's in St. John's Gospel, at the Last Supper, with a great longing, I have longed to share this meal with you. Uh, we need to understand that that's how Christ is with us. He longs to share the Holy Eucharist with us. And we need to appreciate that when we're not there, we disappoint him. Oh. And uh, that is very sad because this is a meal that cost him a great deal. Uh, he, he paid for this with his, his own last drop of his blood. And uh, it, it's very, very sad when we are, are cavalier about responding to his invitation to come to the wedding feast. Oh. I think about those parables of uh, the wedding feast of the king and, uh, and when the Lord tells the parable, he talks about the, uh, the anger of the, uh, the host of the wedding feast. I think it's a, it's a, it's a kind, for, in Christ himself, I think it's a kind of disappointment mm. in the heart. It, it wounds his heart. I mean, imagine if you uh, gave a great celebration for a, a loved one, and they said, well, um, I wasn't able to make it because I wound up binge watching uh, old episodes <laughs> of X, Y, and Z. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very disappointing. What does success look like? I think one very measurable uh, criterion is an increased attendance at the Holy Eucharist. Mm -hmm. oh. But I also think, I mean, I'm running on here. You maybe no, want, it's want good. to no, get a word fine. in yeah. edgewise. No, I also helpful. think it's important. One of the young priests told me this. I think it's true. We don't. We can't just treat the Eucharist and uh, in uh, commitment to the Eucharist uh, as an isolated element. Uh, so I know this priest is having, trying to encourage all of his parishioners to say the morning offering. Mm. That uh, we have to have a Eucharistic life. Mm. Uh, and the Eucharist is about sacrifice. It's about offering. Uh, it's not the presence of Christ in the Eucharist is the presence of the Lamb, the presence of the Paschal Christ, the presence of Christ uh, who died and rose. 
the presence of the self-giving Christ. And so uh, for the Eucharist to make sense and to be appreciated, we have to come to it with a, a conviction that this is the highest goal in my life is to offer, make an offering to God. And my offering is valuable, it's worthy insofar as it's united to the self-offering of Jesus. And that's the, I mean, that's a long way of talking about the simple beauty of the morning offering. Mm. I offer you all my prayers and works, all my thoughts and actions of this day. Because the Eucharist is not a life uh, style enhancement, mm -hmm. uh, principally. The Eucharist is about an action. It's about uh, giving myself along with Christ to the Father. And imagine how pleasing that is when the Father looks at uh, Mike's offering and Mary's offering and Alan's offering mm -hmm. and sees it right there along with Christ. Uh, that that's awesome. I was once talking to a pastor and he said, and we were talking about the fact that um, Catholics our age, my age, have in some ways from their childhood just left their faith, right? And gone to different denominations and things like that. And he said, you know, I don't know, I don't know why they're doing it because we have Jesus. <laughs> we have Jesus. Uh -huh. And I wonder sometimes though, um, how we help people to understand that we have Jesus, right? Because there is this lack of belief that um, the faithful are reporting, you know, they don't, they don't know it. And so do you imagine that the, the Eucharistic Congress, what we're doing is a, is an ability to recatechize this, this feast that we've been invited to through the cross of Jesus, right? I do. And uh, you know, I think uh, we have to be careful that it isn't just uh, a head thing, mm -hmm. uh, disclosing, I like that word, manifesting that this is Christ in his self-offering uh, on the altar in our churches uh, is done certainly by all the things we say, but it's done in a thousand, thousand ways. It's done by uh, the way we behave at Mass. Uh, mm -hmm the reverence we show. I mean, this mystery is awesome. Do we, uh, come, do we come with awe? Is that mm. manifested? And is it manifested in the hymns we sing? Mm. Uh, is it, how many ways do we give witness? Because this, this is only knowable with the eyes of faith. I mean, mm. if you don't have faith, it looks like a, a little whole wheat wafer and uh, some pretty mediocre wine. Yeah. Oh. Yep. <laughs> There's not a lot of fireworks at mass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but in, in, uh, I was very impressed in, with the Holy Father's recent artic, uh, apostolic letter about uh, the Eucharist, where he talks about the art of celebrating has to be practiced not only by the priests, but also by the congregation. Mm. We all have an obligation to uh, make manifest this awesome mystery. Heaven comes to earth in our churches, whether it's uh, something as beautiful as uh, the Basilica in Washington, DC, mm -hmm. or uh, a little uh, hut someplace mm -hmm. in uh, uh, 
the far reaches of the world. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I know earlier, Archbishop, I was going to mention, you know, and, and you've already really been answering it. I was going to ask, you know, why is it important for Catholics to truly believe this? And you've been really, you know, beautifully relaying out that it's it's really about this response. It's a response back to God and, and the action that he does first. And, and then even more, you've said on top of that as well, which is beautiful. But I did also want to ask, I mean, this is the million dollar question right here. Well, but, before you, know, you go there, Mike, oh, I want yeah. to pick up more on that. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't make this up. Right, right. The, the, no pope, no council made mm. made up the Eucharistic mystery. Yeah. This is what God has given us as his preferred path to come back to him. Uh, he, uh, The son established the holy sacrifice of the Eucharist as the way, the ordinary way for women and men to come into the kingdom of God. This is his way, not oh. our way. Okay, now go ahead. No, no. <laughs> That's You're so fine. key, That's, though. I, you know, it's it funny. Is. I'm doing Bible in a year with Father Mike Schmitz, and, and yeah. he is doing such a good job, Archbishop, going through the Old Testament worship and the fact that we are made for worship and that this is what God desires and this is what gives us authentic freedom and authentic love and all the things that this world is seeking. But he's doing this really cool lens where you you kind of see the whole faith picture that this is how God wants to be worshipped, right? Like It's huge. Right. And and yeah. he wants it because this is what's going to make us happy. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's good yes. for us. Right. So good. Yeah. You know, the million dollar question I wanted to ask you, Archbishop, and, uh, and you know, Mary kind of alluded to it almost earlier, but like, why, why is it that many Catholics, why are those stats the way they are? Why does it seem that so many Catholics lack in this belief uh, in the Eucharist? And I know sometimes people have pointed to the catechesis, but, you know, I know we've probably had never had better catechetical tools and, and instruments and, uh, than now, you know, and um, it seems it's not necessarily that they don't necessarily know, it's that they don't believe, you know, or, or I don't know, just what are some of your thoughts on that? So mm. why, why are we in this situation? I think that's a better question for, I mean, I think sociologists would be better able to answer that question than mm. I can. Mm. Um, I wonder if uh, <clears throat> some of it, uh, one piece of it is an ever-growing sensibility of, of a consumerist mentality. Hmm. that uh, more and more we think of ourselves as customers. Uh, and uh, if that's the way we think about life and the experiences of life, then I think the Eucharist is going to fade into the background. I'm uh, always struck when I see uh, advertisements that emphasize experience. Uh, Instead of going to a store, you have a shopping experience. Mm -hmm. Or instead of receiving health care from my doctor, I have a health care experience. Mm. And uh, all of that looks at the various relationships in life uh, through this paradigm of uh, myself as, as a customer, mm -hmm. uh, as a consumer. And if, if we come to the Eucharist as a consumer, then I think uh, you, you can understand how if that's your perspective, uh, it's not going to, it, it, it's going to fade in its importance. Mm. 
because there are other perhaps more um, uh, potent experiences that are available to me. You know, one of the, as I continue to uh, think out loud here, mm-hmm. I wonder if some people don't even think of their marriages and their family as uh, a consumerist experience. Mm-hmm. You know? uh-huh. uh, that it's not about the relationship of mutual giving, but uh, it's about having a satisfying experience. Mm. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're both <laughs> well, catechists. What do you think? Yep. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, when you were first saying it, I was kind of thinking to myself, I'm like, it's funny how we have people come out of the woodwork for like uh, Ash Wednesday, for example. And uh, and it's like, well, why is that? You know, it's like something about Lent and like people want their ashes and people will be like, oh, why did you come? Oh, I want my ashes. So it's like there's a consumer mentality even around that. So tying that into the Eucharist, you'd think like, oh, they'd come every Sunday because they want the Eucharist. They want the Eucharist from a consumer mindset. But I get what you're saying in a sense of like um, consumer, you're, it's almost reducible to like almost a selfishness. It's, it's like, I want to get, I want to get, I want to get. And there's never a mindset of giving. And the Eucharistic mindset is not just one of receiving Christ's body and blood, soul and divinity, but it's also what am I giving back? And that's the more robust, more full version. It's what I'm hearing you say. Is that, would you say that's correct or? Yes. I mean, I think that's a piece of it. I, uh, maybe we're also guilty for uh, obscuring the awesomeness of the mystery. I think we have to mm. examine our consciences about that. I think mm-hmm. that's something that Pope Francis emphasizes in this latest document. I thought it was quite providential. I think it came out a week ago where he talks about the, the uh, congregation's art of celebrating does the congregation uh, engage in the celebration in such a way that they manifest the awesomeness? Uh, And not to forget that uh, we priests are responsible in great part for manifesting our own sense of reverence and awe Mm -hmm. at the holy holy mystery. I'm excited because in a few minutes we're going to talk about um, the power of witness too, because I think that is a key piece of this, that through this three-year process, we can really start to, I'm going to use the word exploit, but celebrate what the Eucharist has done in our lives and finding the language to share that with other people as a means of invitation, right? Like, I think that there's some real potential there. I did want to ask before, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm ready. I'm ready okay. when you take this there, Mary. But go ahead. All right. I just want to ask really briefly because this was, it's actually, to be silly, it's one of the questions we have in our outline. And I think it's really a good question before we dive into the witness aspect because the Archdiocese is doing awesome things with that. During um, the procession that we had from the cathedral to the seminary, I wondered if that was intentional, those two locations. Was it just the the proximity was close or did you did the kind of the idea of processing with the Eucharist for Corpus Christi from the cathedral to the seminary was that intentional it's both it was practical and also mm-hmm. intentional in that sense because mm-hmm. there's this obviously uh, we the seminary is where men prepare themselves to uh, pastor the faithful the culmination of uh, w- uh, the, which service is uh, leading in the Holy Eucharist. So, yeah. no, it was very, very much uh, on my mind when I uh, uh, set that direction. See, I'm glad I asked the question, and here is why. Because, again, it's it's very interesting at this time in history. It's 
it's pretty easy for me to see the movement of the Holy Spirit maybe greater than I've ever seen it in my life. Because with this year of praying for vocations, and it's it's through the priest that we receive the Eucharist as God ordained. And so thinking about the kind of kickoff to this Eucharistic, um, this nas- national Eucharistic revival, beginning with this Corpus Christi walk after the celebration of the year of vocations, like it's all kind of fitting together really beautifully, which I think is a mark of knowing that the Holy Spirit is deeply involved in these movements. I, I agree. Uh, yeah. Cardinal Newman, who's a great hero of mine, says someplace, when the church is in difficulty, it's important for uh, the pastors to uh, get out of the way and watch for what the Holy Spirit wants to do mm-hmm. to uh, uh, advance the life of the church. And uh, I think it's, it's that kind of, uh, I call it a Marian disposition, a disposition of waiting on the Lord and responding when when the Annunciation occurs. Yeah, that's neat. It's so, so hard hopeful. to do. Yeah. yeah, but so hopeful. It's so hopeful. It's great. He said he'd be with us always until the <laughs> consummation of the age. Right. Uh-huh. Right. He never said it was going to be easy. Though. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> uh. Archbishop, following up to that, I know, like obviously, you kicked off this year uh, with that procession. Uh, another thing the Archdiocese is doing here locally uh, to celebrate this Eucharistic revival is the I Am Here campaign, uh, which I know launched just shortly before Corpus Christi. Can you tell us a little bit about that I Am Here campaign and what that involves? Well, it's the use of uh, social media to, to inspire people about encountering Christ in the Eucharist. And it's very much, uh, it, as I understand it, as I've looked through the website, it's got two parts. One is witness. People uh uh, witness to their own experience of uh, the power of prayer in the presence of the Holy Eucharist in celebrating the Holy Eucharist. And then there are uh, resources for people uh, for Eucharistic adoration and prayer. Mm. And I like particularly the witness part. I think it's very, very, very powerful. I think mm. that's a, a good uh, complement to uh, the, the catechetical dimension, to catechesis about the Holy Eucharist. And Unleash the Gospel, you have this quote, um, that testimony has a unique power to touch hearts, since it is almost impossible to ignore the witness of someone who has encountered Jesus personally and whose life has been transformed by him. How can we show people the impact of Christ in our life, maybe in a particular way through the Eucharist, rather than just telling them and saying words, you know, through that catechesis uh, component, which is important. But how do we bear witness? I think honest conversation uh, and an invitation to, to when people are properly prepared, whatever that kind of preparation is appropriate, wherever the Holy Spirit seems to have uh, uh, tilled a, a furrow ahead of us uh, to uh, to to talk about what the Eucharist means to me personally and to invite people to share uh, that blessing. I think that's that's what I understand about witness. Hmm. What, what do you all both think? Mikey? Oh. <laughs> I, was, I, was trying to, I was trying to be a gentleman and let you go first, Mary. Um, you know, I think, I remember years ago having a conversation with a buddy and like the, the people that we it was kind of almost you could you could see the people that you knew that were most like kind of uh, sold out for Jesus, the ones that were most um, ardently thriving after 
you know, working in the church, living for Christ, being a disciple, all of that, almost one factor you could kind of see across the board is that all of them had usually at some point, some story where they, it was something with the Eucharist and they had some encounter with Christ in the Eucharist and, um, and it meant the world to them and it changed and, and shaped the, their, their world moving forward, of course, you know? Um, and so, I mean, I agree obviously on this whole point of the testimony and how important and impactful it is, but, you know, Archbishop, I wonder, you know, this, I am here, uh, campaign, what's beautiful about it is it, it, it opens the door. It opens the opportunity for people to share their kind of witness, their testimony of how the Eucharist has shaped or changed their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I guess I wonder, Archbishop, if you if you were to write, or I don't know, maybe you already have done so. Maybe you've already actually submitted to this I Am Here yeah. campaign. But if you were to do so or haven't done so yet, what would you share? Is there a specific Eucharistic encounter that comes to mind for you? I'm going to uh, pick, before I answer that one, I'm going to yeah. go back to the question that uh, we were talking about, which mm-hmm. is... Uh, about how to how to make the witness effective. I wonder mm-hmm. if a good way isn't uh, for some in a in a when the conversation moves in in the direction of of uh, uh, someone telling her his story of the importance of the Eucharist to say, uh, and I'd like that for you, and maybe we could we say a prayer right now that mm. you you have. Uh, what God wants you to have so that, that you can share this blessing. I think to get people to pray, uh, even, well, certainly to, to offer to pray for them. I mean, the simplest thing is to mm. say, is it okay if I pray for this for you? Mm. Maybe a little, another more uh, pointed step is, how about we pray for this grace for you right now? Mm-hmm. If I think if you can put a, an opening in people's hearts with prayer. I think the Holy Spirit knows how to use that. Maybe a little simplistic, but that's what I think. I think that's I think that's so spot on that that, that uh-huh. call to invitation as you were speaking. I was thinking about Mike and I have talked to catechists about kind of um the method that we use when we're when we're speaking or when we're trying to open up ideas. And it's like you take the idea and then you root it to a story of how it how the Lord has moved in your life. You ground it in scripture, but that piece of invitation, I don't know if I've ever been really explicit about, right? So it's its this, this story of how God has moved in your life as rooted through the word of the Lord, but then now I'm going to invite you into it. And I think sometimes we do forget that step. So I'm so glad you took a moment to remind mm-hmm. us that that step is essential to bearing witness. Next comes invitation or while you're witnessing, you're inviting people into this life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have given that witness on a number of times, and it has it occurs when uh, I'm asked about my vocation story, and I uh, talk about how uh, when I was a sophomore in the college seminary, it all seemed very confused and confusing, and I was praying in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament at the seminary chapel, in the seminary chapel, and uh, I just realized I was being a coward, and mm-hmm. that's not the disciple I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And if the path forward involved walking through confusion and difficulty, uh, if that's what the Lord was asking of me, then that's the kind of man, that's the kind of disciple I wanted to be. So I would say that's the most powerful uh, mm-hmm. Eucharistic prayer experience I've ever had. That's great. really gave you some a new, a profound courage in that moment or kind of an right. encouragement from the Lord. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mike, do you have a time when through 
the Eucharist or the experience with the Eucharist, you felt drawn to the Lord in a deeper way? I mean, I have so so many different times that the Lord's done that. I would say one of the key first ones for me is I actually was attending a Franciscan University Steubenville Youth Conference um, as a teen. I think it was between my junior and senior year of high school. And uh, I was atten- attending it with my girlfriend at the time who was um, kind of more of an atheist. She was really, you know, I think she somehow got strung along on this retreat, but didn't really want to be there. And um, I was a little bit more of an open place myself. And so, you know, at the youth, youth conferences, the evening of adoration is a big piece of that conference. And so, you know, this is back in the nineties when they did it in the tent still. And so they had a big old, you know, circus tent and they start processing around the blessed sacrament. And, uh, you know, the, the impact it had on me when the Eucharist passed by and seeing the impact it had on her, this kind of, uh, skeptic, atheistic, non-believer person, uh, was just huge for me. And I remember simultaneously feeling, uh, I've never felt more loved, intensely loved, but also intensely knowing that I'm a sinner. Like I, mm. both of those emotions so intense at the same time. And, um, I would say that, that, that moment was a spark that really led to me studying theology and doing ministry and moving to Michigan. And like, just my whole life mm. has been kind of that moment is what I would say sparked it. And of course I've had some beautiful other Eucharistic moments since, but mm. yeah. That's awesome. So good. Well, and I think it's important to, to know about you, one Mary? of the, oh, I will share. Uh, well, I'll, yeah, I'll say this before I say what I was going to say. I, um, I was kind of praying with what we were going to talk about today and um, thinking about the Eucharist in my own life. And I had shared with Mike prior to recording that I feel like the times in my life where I have been most certain that the Lord was speaking to me is when I'm before the Lord in his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And so um, there's actually been countless times mm-hmm. when, um, again, and it's, I suppose, you know, when when I get to heaven, I'll confirm that it was the voice of God, but there's been countless times in prayer that uh, before the Lord, before the Eucharist, where um, like a word has been spoken that I didn't anticipate. So one of the one of the examples I gave is to you, Mike, right? Actually, before we recorded, there was a time maybe five or six years ago where I was just really feeling the heaviness of the world and um, how do we see ourselves out of the uh, destruction that we're in. And I was I was invited to be at a, an event that had Eucharistic adoration. I was talking to Jesus and I said, you know, why won't you just come back? Why won't you just come back and kind of end this? And I really felt strongly that the Lord spoke to my heart. It was like, you know, do you think I can't? Because I could. (laughs) And I repeated back to him, well, then why don't you just come back? And he's like, because there's more work to be done. And that has over the last four or five years been a real motivation for me to continue the work of ministry, even when things are heavy, there's more work to be done. And again, that voice or that, that conversation I felt I was having with Jesus, it, it didn't feel like it was just for me. Like it, I'm, I'm certain that the Lord was very involved in that prayer and helping me mm-hmm. to see the work that we still have to do despite maybe some of the darkness. And so, but there's been countless times in my life before the Lord where I feel like he's spoken to me very intentionally when I'm before his body, blood, soul, and divinity. So this I am here kind of website and then app and is tied together with Hallow. It's giving people an opportunity to share their witness. So the people that are Mm. listening, I really hope that they go and check out this website. I really hope that they contribute to it. I want to read what the Lord through his Eucharist is doing in the lives of people in Metro Detroit because it gives me courage and inspiration to keep moving, right? Mm. Amen. Amen. 
Yeah. I'm really excited about this, this I am here movement within the archdiocese. I think it's going to be really, really awesome. Really awesome. You know, this is part of the, the name God gave of himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am. And it's part of the name of Jesus. Uh, the name Jesus in Hebrew, Yahshua, is uh, I am uh, saves. Mm. So it's very disclosive, very Excellent. revelatory. Yeah. It's a great title. I am is here. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like it's such a gift that we have. And um, I, I love that you referenced in the beginning of this podcast, Archbishop, and then I'll ask you another question, but the disappointment of, uh, of Jesus when we don't partake in what he's invited us to. And um, that should stir us to action, right? That we want to do this for our Lord. We want people to know that his presence is available to them um, through this awesome gift, through this awesome meal and this sacrifice that he's given us. If I can ask you, like aside from the Eucharistic processions and even this website, what are some other things that we can do to actively participate in the Eucharistic revival in our archdiocese, particularly in this next year? What would you, for those that are listening, if you had an ideal world archbishop and everybody listening just did these couple things, what should we be doing to actively participate? Make a visit to the most blessed sacrament. Hmm. Uh, At least... uh, a couple of times a week, ideally every day. And I mean, I know because of practicalities, there are a lot of times when the churches have to be locked, Mm -hmm. but stop in the parking lot. Uh, Your prayer can pass through a brick wall. Uh, But uh, I think think visits to the Blessed Sacrament are, are very, it's one very powerful key. And I think it is important to note that aod.org slash Eucharistic Revival, there's a list of parishes that have Eucharistic adoration, right? So um, being able to spend time with the Blessed Sacrament, really, it it's not necessarily always our parish, but regionally, within probably a 15, 20-minute drive, we can find the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament to do a holy hour, right? Like, I feel like it's accessible in that way. It's just it is, a matter yes. of knowing that and figuring out where it is. And so the Archdiocese has done such a good job giving us a tool to be able to find him, (laughs) even Mm. though he's always there, but know where he's exposed, so. Mm. Archbishop, I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to add to this topic or anything you wanted to kind of wrap things up with this? Um, Just to to summarize, I think two really important points. One, the Eucharistic presence of Christ is a Paschal presence. It's Christ in his self-offering to the Father and offering of himself to us. It's not for show, it's for communion of heart and mind. And the other is that, that we, give, we give joy to the heart of Christ uh, by uh, participating in the Eucharist. And is there anything more uh, uh, satisfying, more rewarding that we could do than to make the Son of God happy? Oh, I love that. We give joy to the heart of Christ. Perfect. Well, we've reached the point in the podcast where we get to ask you, Archbishop Vigneron, questions from the faithful. If you're listening and you would like to ask a question, we would invite you to email eyesonjesuspodcast at aod.org. 
When you email, make sure to include your name, your parish, and of course, your question. Again, that's eyes on Jesus podcast at AOD.org. Our first question comes from Dennis at St. Alfred. Dennis asks, what invention, gadget, or product has impacted your life the most in the last 20 years? There are two nominees in that category. <laughs> <laughs> the home computer and the cell phone. Yeah. Uh, and I guess if I really spend some time thinking about it, it's my cell phone. Mm. But the home computer is really very important for the way I do my, my life, my, do my work. Both yeah. of them, I would say. It's almost a tie, but the cell phone uh, wins. Yeah. Very good. I was reading an article about how drastically, like sometimes we forget to step away and think about how communication has been altered by those two things, like completely and totally altered at a global level mm. through the home computer and the cell phone. So good answer. I agree. Archbishop, do you find using your cell phone like uh, tempting? Like do you get kind of just find yourself on there scrolling or doing things that are not too bad for you? Not too bad, but I do have to discipline myself not to uh, waste time uh, yeah. looking at uh, some sites. I, I, right. I, I, from the statistics I see, I'm certainly not a major user, <clears throat> yeah. but uh, I do have to ask myself from time to time, uh, is there a better way to use uh, the time that I'm expending on this or that uh, yes. uh, site? Right, right. I scandalize myself sometimes when I look at the amount of time that I've been on my cell phone when they, your your cell phone gives you that report that tells you. And it's it's a really good examination of conscience when you yeah. see exactly how much time you spent on the cell phone. So yeah. constant work. At the last at the last judgment, we'll be like, but Lord, I spent, you know, <laughs> 10 years of my life playing Candy Crush. And that was important. Know. You know, so. Oh, man. Oh, geez. Yeah. That's funny. Mm -hmm. Archbishop, I have a question here from John at St. Perpetua, and he asks, do you have a, quote, typical day as an archbishop? And the answer is no. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think any priest has a, huh. a typical day every day yeah. of the week. I think a, a more uh, uh, illuminative point would be I have typical Sundays, typical Mondays, and mm. depending on the day of the week, then they take on a, a typical quality. Mm. Uh, Monday is typically jammed up with meetings. I don't know why Monday is the uh, the day everybody wants. Maybe they've been <laughs> saving things up for the weekend, <laughs> yeah, I, right? from the weekend. But Monday is usually jammed with meetings. Uh, mm. uh, Sunday is... Uh, Mass, either at the cathedral or parish mass, if there's uh, some event. Uh, I have uh, I tried to step away from work on Friday, make that a very typical uh, period of in, uh, reading and uh, mm. relaxation and prayer. So, okay. But uh, no one typical day. I have typical experiences. I mean, there's the experience of uh, my own uh, ongoing learning, that's a, yeah. something I try to do every week. Oh. Uh, I mean, very typical, of course, is my celebration of the Mass every day yeah. and uh, praying the Divine Office and the Rosary. So that's oh. typical every day. Right. To get those rhythms, those disciplines that are inserted in there, but you know everything else that falls around it might shift and change right. a lot, it sounds like, yeah. Yes. 
it's crazy. I imagine with the size of our diocese and the amount of parishes and priests and faithful committees. And I mean, the demands on your time have to be quite amazing. So to be able to move in rhythm a little bit, like on Fridays, I do take some time for rest. I think that's important, right? Yeah. In the yeah. midst right. of everybody needing you for everything, I'm sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the late Bishop Marlino uh, used to emphasize to the seminarians this axiom, uh, look in the mirror every morning and say, I am not the Messiah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Bob from Our Lady of Good Counsel asks this question. What mystery of God do you most wish to fully understand? In other words, what is the one theological question you would ask God if you had the chance? Such a good question. I would ask him to explain his providential guidance of the history of the world for times that look like uh, uh, evil seems to be uh, Hmm. triumphant. Uh I mean, I know by faith that uh, he brings good out of uh, everything that occurs, but there are some bad things that have happened that I I don't see the good he's brought out of it. Uh And I would like to understand that better. And I actually think I don't have to ask him. I think that'll be part of the gift of heaven. And the other question I have for him is, why does he love us? Because I don't know that we're particularly (laughs) lovable. (laughs) It's a good question. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that'll be part of heaven too. Mm -hmm. Maybe to, maybe heaven will be the grace of not having the question to be seem so pressing. Right. Just to, hmm. you know, chill out. Yeah. <laughs> have God say and that. No. Right. Chill. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be so awesome. I love to spend time meditating on eternal life and kind of the, the end of the pilgrimage we're on. You know, it's just, it's awesome to meditate on being invited into the eternal kingdom of God. It's good. Hmm. Amen. Yeah. Archbishop, thank you so much for our conversations today. I think it was some great stuff. I know some, as Mary said, you know, some great insightful things for us to reflect on when it comes to the Eucharist and the power that is there. Uh, before we end, of course, I always want to ask you if there's anything that uh, us and Mary and I, of course, and the listeners can be praying for you for this next month. Any special intentions on your heart? Well, I have, uh, as you both know, uh, asked the whole archdiocese to make this a year of intense prayer for vocations to the priesthood within the archdiocese. And I would ask people to uh, renew their commitment to do that and uh, offer a decade of their rosary every day for that intention. You got it. Sounds good. Archbishop, would you mind closing us with a, with a closing prayer and blessing? Not at all. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks for this uh, holy conversation. We entrust it to your divine providence, confident that you will use our efforts, weak as they are, uh, for the sake of the glory of your name. And may Almighty God bless all of you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thanks, Archbishop. Oh, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mary. Stay tuned for the next episode of Eyes on Jesus, a new episode every month. And if you enjoyed listening, you might also like Detroit Stories, a podcast from the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find it on your favorite podcast app.